This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Kristen Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. Now, the purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. We want to understand the work of tomorrow. We as Homo sapiens have been eating meat for a very long time. Over our ancestries, we moved from hunters to farmers and managed to domesticate animals some 10,000 years ago. Since then, not much has changed. When we want to eat meat, we still have to kill an animal. Now, that sounds obvious, in fact, almost tautological, but as we will see in our show today, animal meat might soon be produced without killing animals. How? Some firms are using advanced biochemistry to grow animal cells, yielding leather or proteins such as eggs or meat. If that new technology approach flies, it could disrupt much of the farming industry while also leading to dramatic ecological improvements. To help us understand old and new forms of meat production, I will have two wonderful guests on my show today. Thomas Bowman is a lead research chef at Just, a company that is specializing in clean meat production. And in the second half of the show, I will talk with uh, Will Harris, who is a third-generation farmer of old white oak pastures down in Georgia. At this point, welcome, Thomas. Thanks for having me, Christian. Yeah, uh, excited to be on. Hey, Thomas, in my short career as a radio host, I had chefs on my show, I had scientists on my show. Uh, you have mastered uh, both of these domains, so tell us how you got into your current job. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've, I've been a professional chef for um, over 18 years now, and I've kind of always been on the science side of food. I've worked in uh, what's called molecular gastronomy restaurants, where we really you know, break the food down to its um, individual components to create new foods. And we worked at a famous place in Chicago called Moto Restaurant. And we had a way of saying there that we don't make food that other people can make. And so that really translated really well moving into Just as a, as a product developer there. I'm really creating uh, new foods for the world. So Just started by selling mayonnaise. Uh, how do you make mayonnaise without using eggs? Yeah, so uh, we started that and kind of got in the limelight by making a, a um, Just Mayo as our first product. And uh, we were the you know kind of the the, uh, the the head of a kind of a David Goliath versus Goliath lawsuit, basically saying that we don't need to send anybody to need for mayonnaise uh, because uh, the standard says that you have to have eggs, mustard, and minimum sixty five percent oil. So the FDA kind of looked through the case and said, okay, we don't need the standard of identity for uh, mayonnaise, but you can keep the name just mayo. So uh, from there, you know, we really. Uh, we're in the limelight for winning the state of the lineup suit, and we uh, made just mayo, and that was our first product. And with that, we used the Canadian yellow pea, which we found to be uh, a great replacement for kind of the egg binding quality or the oil binding qualities of an egg. And an egg has about 26 different food functional properties. And a Canadian yellow pea was a really good oil binder. So we're able to make this emulsified oil product, which was our just mayo, and we are continuing to make products that are better for the world from there. How much of that do you sell? We sell a lot of just mayo. Um, the exact numbers, I'm not sure, but it's uh, it's a lot. We've uh, um, we're one of the only mayonnaise or mayos in the in the market right now that is increasing uh, uh, volume in the in the category. And if I would visit your production process, what would I see? What what does it look like? I mean, there are no chicken running around, I imagine, right? So uh, what what does it look like? 
Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing about, about Just Food is, you know, we have a bunch of really great chefs on staff, and we'll actually go to the production facilities to ensure that, you know, what we make on the bench or in the kitchen uh, is the exact same product that goes into the bottle. So we actually follow our, our products all the way through production. I'll be up on a, on a platform, you know, two stories in the air, above uh, 500 or 750-gallon mixers. And I'll be up there, you know, dumping uh, big bags of, you know, Canadian yellow pea protein into the mixture at the right time, setting your pea for the guys, for these guys at our facilities, showing them uh, exactly how to make it so it comes out uh, exactly as we envisioned in the kitchen. So, so it looks just like a, a lot like, you know, a normal uh, mayo production just without the eggs. So that alone is worthy of a photo for our website in the future. Is uh, Chef Thomas standing there on a, a 750-gallon reactor pouring in, like, uh, the, the ingredients. Um, now, for us as consumers, is this mostly a health-slash-cholesterol story, or is this more about the environment and kind of a moral aspect that has to deal with, deal with how we treat animals? Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's both. But uh, it's largely, you know, uh, the battery cage egg system is such a broken system. And, and our whole goal is to fix the, the broken food system, whether it be battery cage eggs to chickens to meat to, uh, you know, reducing CO2 emissions just by using less water, um, getting, you know, conventional animal agriculture um, back to a state of uh, equilibrium. Um, you know, just really kind of a, a better, better for you, better for the planet product. So if you think about that kind of double or triple bottom line effect, so we talked about the consumer health benefit. There is a CO2 kind of effect in terms of just, uh, if you think about both the carbon footprint of the, the egg production or the transportation processes, other things. Um, now, there's clearly also a cost implication. So if you think about dollars per pound or dollars per ton or dollars per gallon of, of, of mayonnaise, do you have a sense on how where your, your technology compares to traditional mayonnaise production? Yeah, well, I mean, we are we are right on par. Uh, it's a little cheaper in some places. I mean, we have a recommended you know sales price, but then retailers can then um, kind of put their own sales price on it, but we are we are right on par uh, as the the main competitors out there on the market. So you know, as a cost comparison, I mean, the amount of uh, Canadian yellow pea protein that it takes in our product versus the weight of dried eggs or uh, fresh eggs, uh, it's actually right on par. So has this cost come down significantly over the last years? You would imagine with any kind of new technology, new innovation that. There's a little bit of a steep cost curve at the beginning. Uh, is that something that you have come down a lot? Are you still cutting, reducing these costs? Or are we now at a point where, I mean, also these the cells that you're currently using, they need some kind of food for the cells as well. Are we getting to a point where really you have kind of squeezed out efficiency? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, just one, one example being the Canadian yellow pea, there's been a lot of interest in it uh, kind of, globally as of the last probably five years. And I think that within about 2020 in the next two years, we're going to be at capacity where we'll be producing more Canadian yellow pea protein than there's actually demand for. So the price will continue to come down on that. And then for the cellular agriculture side, you know, yes, we, we definitely need to find cheaper ways of, of feeding the cells. So, you know, let's move to meat maybe. So mayonnaise without eggs, it's a stretch for me, but I, I think I get it. 
But a steak without killing an animal is like, that is just blowing my mind. So uh, how, how what's your roadmap from mayonnaise to meat? Yeah, so that was a, uh, we were in Hong Kong about two years ago, a little over two years ago, and uh, we were doing kind of marathon meetings and we were doing all these, you know, tastings for for uh, people there. And, you know, it was a, probably day two of these marathon meetings and Josh, our CEO, came back to the kitchen and he, uh, he grabbed something off of a tray and shoved it in his mouth and he ate it. And he's a, he's a vegan and he was just so hungry, he just grabbed something. And it, it was Kobe A4, uh, rolled in uh, truffle mayo and grilled. And he said, what was that? And I said, well, that's uh, Kobe A4. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a type of cattle that, you know, has to be traced back by 13 generations. It's got a certain Kachima bloodline. You actually get a nose print from it, proving that it's actually from this bloodline. And, you know, it's actually not saturated fat or not completely saturated fat because of the way it's treated, the way it's raised, the diet it's fed. And it's just a really incredible product that about 99% of the world has never even seen. He said, I had no idea, you know, there was this type of meat out there and that everybody should have access to this. So the next day, he came up to me in that same hallway in, in a kitchen in Hong Kong, and he said, what do you know about Selag? And I said, well, you know, funny enough, that's kind of what my brother does. It's something that he and I have been talking about for about 10 years. So uh, from there, kind of the Selag program was born at Hampton Creek, and uh, we started producing, uh, you know, our first uh, line of, of cells um, from the avian family, and uh, isolated a handful of cells and continued to, uh, to grow them um, in and bioreactors and shaker flasks in, in the lab and set up a uh, master cell bank of, of these cells. And then when we're looking at other cell lines as well, this is where if you have one single cell and you can get that cell to double um, 40 times and each of its following cells, you've created about 66 million kilograms of meat in a matter of about 15 days. So the, the process behind this is a very efficient one. When you look at conventional agriculture, um, say the beef industry, for example, for every one pound of meat, there's nine pounds of manure, and it's sometimes upwards of about 12 to 1, 12 calories in to 1 calorie out. With cellular agriculture, we can take these cells and get close to a 1 to 1 ratio, calories in to calories out, because you're not producing all of the things that you don't need. You're just producing the cells that you actually need to produce the meat with. So it's really like the basic of lean production, so to say, and I guess the, the, the word lean has here many meanings, right? But the idea of lean in a production setting is basically a waste reduction. And when I want to eat the meat, there's no point of growing an animal along the way. Uh, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, when you, when you think about you know, animal production, it takes about two years to grow a cow to full size. Um, in that same time, you know, it's producing things that a lot of times go to waste. Um, a lot of the bones, the cartilage, the, the skin, um, all of that, you know, sometimes it'll go to leather, sometimes it'll go to, you know, dog food and glue and things like that, but a lot of times it just goes to waste. So it's really just being efficient and producing only the things you need. And the biggest cost uh, prohibitive uh, thing with cellular agriculture is the, the media or the stuff that it takes to feed the cells. So at Just, we're, you know, very uniquely uh, suited with, you know, this extensive knowledge of plant proteins and what exists in the, in the natural world within plants to feed to these cells. When you think about it, you know, cow, cows eat grass, chickens, you know, graze on corn and grass and worms. They eat these things and, you know, they double in size. So we can really look at the natural world, look at the things that they're eating and produce cheaper forms of media for these cells, because if you can't get cellular agriculture 
within you know the range of conventional agriculture, it's not going to work. It has to be uh, as inexpensive or cheaper than what's out there for this to work. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Thomas Bowman. Now, Thomas has an interesting job. He's the lead research chef at Just, and as such is uh, in charge of coming up with new products in the space of artificial proteins that are basically creating animal-like protein consumer products, be it egg experiences or meat experiences, and he does this based by growing cells in the lab. So is the motivation, uh, Thomas, for these, um, the animal-free uh, meat, so to say, is, is that the same motivation as for the eggs? It is, uh, what I found interesting is that you started out with a, an amazing taste experience. You didn't start out with a need to save the world. You didn't start out with a need to cut costs. You said, like, well, look, it was about rebuilding a fascinating kind of eating experience. Is, uh, what is, it in, is in it for the consumer? Well, the world of soil agriculture, we call it clean meat. And this has kind of been, you know, with, with just food and with having such, you know, world-class chefs as we do, the number one thing is is flavor, is that it has to taste good at the end of the day. Um, and it, we call it clean meat. And the amazing thing that I've found out is it, it tastes incredible um, without doing anything to it, without the chef magic, just straight from the bioreactors into a pan. It tastes like all of the amazing, savory, umami qualities of meat and you get the Maillard reaction. But there's a lot of actually negative uh, volatiles or flavor compounds within meat that we just don't even notice really as we eat them because we're just so used to them. There's a lot of bitter iron flavors. Well, when you taste clean meat, it actually, that's exactly what it tastes like. It's very, you know, very pure, meaty, uh, without the negative volatiles. So that's been kind of the amazing thing. And one of my biggest worries with this is that, you know, it could taste like not much of anything at all, or even worse, it could taste terrible. Well, that's been the most amazing thing is that, you know, without doing anything to it, it tastes very clean, very meaty, very savory, without the, the bitter negative compounds. So I have this picture now in my mind. The first picture was you standing there on this bioreactors uh, making the mayonnaise. Now, I, I just have a hard time picturing how you're going to get now the, the, the meat out of the bioreactor. So so help us as laymen who don't have a PhD in chemistry. How, how do you take those cells out and how do they end up on something that could resemble my barbecue? Yeah, so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of stepping stones to get to something that would look like a whole, you know, steak that uh, either you would throw in the barbecue, you would kind of start with uh, what looks like a cell or, or kind of looks like a paste, kind of a coagulated paste almost from mm-hmm. the bioreactors. From there, we can then, you know, use that uh, as, a, as an early stepping stone after products where you actually already break the meat down into kind of more of a paste-like products, your force meats, your sausages, your lunch meats, um, things like that, your, your pâtés, your careens. Uh, a really good stepping stone where we don't have to build the scaffolding and don't need a whole lot of different cell types. When you look at a, a muscle, there's about 26 different types of muscle cells, so then a whole muscle steak. Then there's also connective tissue. There's cartilage. There's sinew. There's fat. There's all of these different types of, uh, of cells within there. So with only a few different you know types of cells, we can actually create uh, you know some of these early stage you know. Uh, sausages or horse meat products. And then from there, we can look at better ways of finding scaffolding. Also looking at the natural world, our kind of uh, knowledge of plant life, and looking at scaffolding that exists in the natural world, you know, where it might be um, 
a mushroom that we grow that becomes the scaffolding to hold everything together. We might start doing um, bioprinting, which uh, is already feasible, where you can actually take, instead of, you know, ink cartridges, take different cell types and reassemble them back to the way that they're supposed to be. So this process already exists today, but right now um, the 3D kind of bioprinting is is not fast enough to be feasible for actual production of meat. We think that within the next, you know, six to ten years, that that actually will be a, a possibility for reassembling what looks just like a steak or looks just like ahi tuna. But right now what we're really focusing on is as we're finding newer scaffolding and getting the cost down on media, it's kind of these earlier stepping stone products of, you know, sausages. I mean, speaking as a German, right, it is not that the world is without sausage customers, right? Uh yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, sausages, you know, there's every culture kind of has their own version. They're already kind of a, a mashup of, of, you know, different products and cells. There's plants in there. There's, you know, spices, herbs. There's, you know, sometimes different types of animals all smashed together in one sausage. So it's already a, a product that, you know, uh, really works well as kind of until we get better uh, scaffolding to uh, build whole muscle products. So when do you think that kind of next-generation sausage is out in the Whole Foods? I think you started your Just Products for the mayonnaise with, with Whole Foods. Uh, when is it out in the shelves? You know, we're, we're hoping to have uh, something out there within the next, uh, you know, couple of years. Hopefully by the end of this year, hopefully by the end of uh, 2019, we'll have, have those products out there. And that means that you have versions like prototype sausages already in your lab? Yeah, we've we've prototyped a lot of different products from sausages to uh, foie gras to, uh, you know, mini to chicken nuggets. We've done many, many, many prototypes of these products. And, you know, it's really figuring out what is the the best way of going after this, you know, finding the most proliferative line and then really, you know, uh, finding what products that think can make the most impact right out of the gates with. And we're still looking at, you know, different, uh, different lines, different things, different products, and haven't really, you know, dug into one yet. I mean, I, I sense from your voice how excited you are about that. That, uh, that implies that your chef colleagues are not holding your nose looking at their, their former chef colleague, uh, Thomas Bowman, and say, like, he's doing what right now? So when you do the blind testing with, with chefs, with consumers, with your prototype sausages, uh, they, they come out uh, at least as good? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of times people say, I you know, I can't tell the difference. So, I mean, there's some that need some work that, you know, there's there's some work to do, but some of them, you know, are are pretty easy targets and we can go, that's really good. Yes, let's keep working towards something like that. But, you know, as chefs, we're kind of perfectionists. We think that there's always, you know, this, uh, the Kaizen, the constant improvement, it can always be better. Um, so it really is good to get, you know, outside objective opinions on this as well. So we can redo it at Just Foods as well. But we always going to do these outside uh consumer sensories to, to validate. Is the goal to create a sausage that trace, tastes exactly like a traditional sausage, or is the game plan more to taste, have a great taste but somehow distinct so that you're not getting into that kind of just this last delta of kind of this versus this? Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking, I mean, if you think about energy bars or so as a new kind of food category, they weren't there many years ago and people are still buying tons of energy bars. Is it is it the right strategy to go for just exactly like the taste of sausage or is it like just having a, a, a next generation sausage that just tastes better but differently? 
Yeah, I think there's there's definitely avenues there to kind of go after existing products, but then there's also, you know, that idea of avoiding the uncanny valley altogether and creating a new way of consuming animal protein, which is, you know, I thought we have kind of looking at this as, as a whole new way of, of creating meat products and, you know, maybe not just targeting something that's already out there and creating something completely new, creating a new category. That is a thought and definitely an avenue. I think with SOAC, we have uh, a much better uh, ability to be able to create kind of these, you know, new kind of designer almost products where we can really control nutritionals, fat profiles, um, a lot of those, just by the media, we can really, you know, have uh, more saturated fat and less saturated fat, omega-3s versus omega-6s. So a lot of that is really fine-tunable to create kind of these new-to-the-world products. I know that you guys sit out in San Francisco and the, the Valley, by and large, oh, these digital technologies, oftentimes, if you look over them over the last 10, 20, 30 years, have followed kind of exponential growth, Moore's Law type of trajectories. Do you think of your industry also having this kind of this exponential growth because now you have kind of you have all of those cells and the opportunities for recombination is is exponential or is it more that you have basically you've gotten to a level of that you're really good but the last 5% along the way is going to be really hard which way is the future going to be So I I think you know we actually have written on the side of one of our Clean room to a kind of diagram of, of the cells, you know, doubling, and above it it says exponential growth. And we think that you know once we've isolated these cells, there it really is. And if you keep feeding them, keep taking care of them, right, you have exponential growth. And I, I do think that kind of that last five ten percent hurdle that we'll really have to look at tackling is going to be the, uh, the the scaffolding to reassemble into an actual you know uh, meat product, whether it be bioprinting or bio-scaffolding or printed scaffolding, uh, really taking these cells and reassembling them into, you know, whole meat products is going to be that, that last hurdle, which I don't think is unsurmountable, but I definitely think it is going to be the most challenging within cell ag. So that's an interesting question, right? If you think then about the delivery, the supply chain from the current slaughterhouse, right, with a certain history in U.S. agriculture of scale economies and having big slaughterhouses, shipping products, in many cases even from faraway countries, uh, to the other extreme that you're describing, buy local, with your technology, you were hinting at the fact it could be produced local in the sense that I could print my steak uh, from, uh, from home. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a possibility, you know, small bioreactors um, kind of all over. Or, you know, putting eight-story bioreactors um, in downtown Detroit and one in Chicago and, you know, one up in Milwaukee. So there's definitely those avenues of having kind of this at-home or in-restaurant bioreactor where you walk in and you see these bioreactors going and, you know, you order a steak. And, you know, in the future, that steak could be grown right there in the restaurant and it's assembled right there and it's cooked and brought to your table. So, you know, I don't think that, that that future is too far off, and that is definitely a possibility. There's definitely a lot of ways to go about this. The great thing is this is off-the-shelf technology. We're not having to create anything new. These have existed for a long time, and Southern agriculture has been done for a long time, um, mainly in, in pharma and in, uh, institutions. So these large-scale bioreactors out there that we can either use, um, you know, whether it be kind of almost like a co-manufacturer of, of producing mayo, you can kind of get line time and these big bioreactors. Or we can basically build ourselves a giant um, farm, if you will, uh, a bioreactor farm, where we go out and put a bunch of these bioreactors and create a bunch of products, and about 100 
acres or, or less, we'd be able to create about enough food for the United States in one of these giant bioreactor farms. So what does the work look like for the future? If you think about I, I know you have farmer friends and you're friendly with, with farmers also in, in the California area. So uh, will those jobs go away and people will just be kind of wa walking, working, walking around in this big bioreactor plant, kind of just moving gallons or tons of paste from one reactor to the other reactor? Is that the future of food processing? Well, ideally, we'd like to keep the loop uh, as closed as possible. I mean, another reason for going like clean meat is because, you know, we're, we're not introducing any pathogens, no salmonella, no listeria, no E. coli. So the more we can keep that loop closed to where um, there's not much handling to it, the better it's going to be, the safer it's going to be. This is basically coming out of the bioreactors is almost a sterile product. So as long as we can keep that loop closed as, as much as possible, um, ideally, you know, we basically kind of set it up and keep the, uh, the seed train, if you will, or the, the cell train kind of closed so that, you know, there's not too much uh, interaction, chance of contamination there. Well, it is, you know, we definitely try and, uh, you know, follow uh, pharma GMPs for this. You know, this is a food product. And, you know, if we can get this more to a closed loop system and keep it more of food GMPs once it comes out, let's say in a, in a restaurant setting or an at-home setting, you don't have to worry about it as much if you kind of go food GMPs once it's out because then you're just treating it like you would food. And that's another way of getting the cost down is kind of going from pharma GMPs throughout the whole process to once you've actually harvested, go to food GMP. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tervish, and this is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. We'll be back right after the break. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.